Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And this is Erin. So what's on our mind this week before we launch into our election decompression, I think that's what I'm calling it in my mind now, is obviously COVID. And I just think that we're all at a point in the United States where it feels like many states have wanted to have their cake and eat it too, so to speak, that we just don't seem to be willing to give up some of those different activities to keep the masks on, to keep the social interactions limited. And now we're in this space where we're just seeing rapid, rapid growth in the numbers in Michigan for the last couple of weeks every day has hit a new daily high mark of new cases. This is starting to really impact our day-to-day lives again in a big way. I know that we've started to see at least some cases in my children's school. We've had two reports in my son's high school, and then now there have been two, one report in the preschool that is adjacent to my daughter's school, and then a, not a case, but a report of close contact. We all kind of feel like it's just a matter of time before we go back to the remote learning to stay safe. We're wondering when that's going to happen. My sister is an educator in Detroit, and just yesterday, Detroit Public Schools announced that they will no longer do any in-person instruction. Judith, what about you? We're in pretty different parts of the state. Has this started to play in your day-to-day life again at all? Absolutely. I think this is finally catching up with us in a way that it really hadn't before. Uh, we've, Like I said before, we've been fairly unscathed by the whole thing, except for when the college started up in the first couple of weeks, there were some sparks in the numbers. With everything, you know, looking at the national scope, looking at the regional scope, it is really starting to get uh, more nerve-wracking for us now, too. I've also been lucky enough to have had both of my older kids in school for the last uh, two or three months since the big, since my son has been back at daycare since August and my daughter started school the last week of August. So they've enjoyed face-to-face instruction, which I have also enjoyed. My son's daycare has already sort of their whole plan for the year was that they were going to shut down between Thanksgiving and New Year's just to sort of make room or not have to worry about people traveling for the holidays. So that was already a plan that was in place. Over the last couple of weeks, multiple parents have tested positive. Their kids have stayed home. They've been very good about communicating. But I can tell that, you know, the staff is starting to get nervous. And a lot of the staff are older, so they consider themselves a risk group. So I know that they are watching this very closely and making sure that they're keeping themselves safe and that they're keeping the families safe. And so I anticipate that they will shut down either as planned right after Thanksgiving or possibly even before. My daughter is currently home for a couple weeks because uh, somebody at her school, a parapro, tested positive and they had to send everybody into quarantine that was a close contact. And with the function that that person, I don't know who it was, but apparently the function that 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 person had in the school, it forced so many people into quarantine that they couldn't maintain face-to-face instruction just from a staffing perspective. So there's not a massive outbreak yet, but it still sort of has enough of an impact that we're currently doing virtual learning, which... I realize I'm very lucky that I haven't had to do that over the last three months. Um, it's a lot better organized than it was in the spring. She, My daughter actually has a full day. It's from 8.45 to 3.45. It's a solid mix of live instruction and um, asynchronous learning. 
Uh, she's pretty well um, entertained, if you will, uh, occupied, I guess is the term that I should be using. But there's still sort of the problem that for me that like, you know, when she has an assignment that she's supposed to work on, she comes and asks me for help, like, you know, five minutes after I put the baby to sleep or something like that. So it is, a, it is, even though they have pretty solid coverage, it's still an interruption and a disruption to my day. So like, again, I've been lucky, you know, it's, I, it feels like I'm now dealing with, again, with what a lot of other moms out there have been dealing with for the last uh, nine months now. So I don't want to complain too much, but yes, to answer your question, it has definitely been catching up with us. And I think like most things in the United States, this does weirdly become a political issue, which brings us to today's topic, that there were a lot of outcries and protests. And in our state of Michigan, people even showing up to the governor's residence with guns, armed, concealed and carried. You're allowed to do that here, which to me, I find absolutely terrifying. And then as some of our listeners may be aware, there was a plot to kidnap our governor as well right. by some of these fanatical militia types that wanted to kidnap her, I guess, because they think, I don't even know what the reasoning is behind it. They're all so angry about having to wear a mask. And to me, it never seemed to be a political issue. It's just like, okay, I get it. You know what? I don't want to get it. I don't want to spread it. I don't want to carry that over to my mother who is older, who is diabetic, who has risk factors. But this became massively political. And so today, um, we didn't really speak to this last time, but it is November 13th. And it's actually Friday the 13th, which is interesting as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's the last thing we need in 2020, right? Right, right exactly. And while most of our reputable news sources in the United States have have, in fact, declared Joe Biden the victor, the new president of the United States, president-elect. Our current leader, Trump, has yet to concede, which is very bizarre, um, very strange, but in tune with most of what has happened in the last four years. I mean, <laughs> I'm not surprised, I guess. I, I didn't, I didn't right. you know, picture this um, going really easily. And I want to talk a little bit about our sort of reaction to this current election, how it's affected us. And Judith and I will unpack that and kind of think about what this Biden victory may suggest for those of us working in higher ed and the surrounding field. But I kind of wanted to backtrack a little bit and use this time just to maybe think about what has been going on for the last four years back to 2016. I thought we could kind of begin with our reflections and recollections of that 2016 election. And Judith, uh, where were you in 2016? And I know you're always someone that's really pretty good about following current events. I wanted to ask you what you thought back then. Where were you? What was your initial reaction? I know that you've lived on and off in the United States for quite some time, but was there anything in particular about this election that really spoke to you that you recall? That's really funny that you should ask that because it was actually kind of a major life changer for me. Uh, I had followed politics, you know, somewhat. I'm not very knowledgeable about it, but I had paid attention. I used to be on Twitter, um, things like that. And I completely underestimated what was going to happen 2016. I don't think I was alone in that. Um, I did not anticipate that. And so I actually wasn't a citizen at the time, even though I was eligible. But I, like I said, I had underestimated how important it would have been. I was also living in Maryland at the time. So my, my vote actually wouldn't have made a huge difference. But once, um, once the results became clear, there was sort of this day of 
utter sense of doom and disaster. And just I just remember feeling so completely thrown off, surprised, and and just horrified, really um, horrified. And so I turned off my Twitter. I stopped watching politics because I just had such a visceral response of like disgust um, whenever uh, the president came on television or in the debates or anything like that. It was just so visceral for me that I was just had to take a step back and step away from it. And what I actually did the next day was to start my process of applying for American citizenship because I did not want to go through another election of not being able to make my voice heard as somebody who lives in the United States and who was eligible for citizenship. And so it was interesting because it actually, I had to get a document from the German government first before I could actually apply with the United States. And there was a delay with that. And then by the time I actually was able to put in my application, the wait times had increased like significantly. So there were either a huge number of people that were doing the same thing or, you know, the other thing was what was also happening at the same time was that there was just they were just closing down so many offices and and reducing staff that they weren't able to process the applications as quickly. So it took quite a while for the application to go through. But by the midterm elections, I was able to vote, I think. Um, so. So, yeah, it was a huge, uh, huge life changer for me. I think I still would have done it anyways. But it was just sort of this thing where, like, I had to do something like I felt. I felt so guilty about not having done anything leading up to the election because I underestimated what was going to happen that I felt like I had to do something. And that was like the one thing that I could do. So that was, that's my recollection of it. It's kind of, it's, I guess it's kind of funny. It was, it was, it felt great to be able to, to vote this year and to be living in Michigan to know that, you know, the vote actually mattered a little bit more than it does in Maryland. So anyway, what, do you have any recollections of 2016? What was that election like for you? Indeed. Um, so as a mother and a feminist, obviously, we were really excited about Hillary Clinton being on the ticket. I remember feeling completely confident that she would win because I just didn't see how this reality television star was going to sway so many people. It just didn't connect with me. And this does speak to a lot of what we've read after that election subsequently about living in echo chambers and being surrounded by people that share your values and your beliefs. So I felt utterly flabbergasted. And it was kind of a neat election because my son has always followed politics. So he was about 12 that year. And we both turned on our laptops. We had like two or three laptops going. And we had all these different websites open just to see. Um, he was following, I think it's Nate Silver. Is it 538? I think that's the mm -hmm. um, predicting website. And so we were looking at that. And we were like, you know, we had studied the maps before. And we're like, eh, there's really not a path to a Trump presidency. That's just not going to happen. But we had it on for a couple of hours. And it became clear to me that Trump was yeah. winning. And I couldn't. It was like slow motion. And and I had like all these, I just remember it, all these different windows open on my different laptops. And like one was, it was weird because I was, I had the Guardian, the UK journal open. They were getting their results faster than some of the American ones. That right. was weird. I was on NPR. I was on PBS. I was on the 538 site. And I was just like, what the heck is happening? And I think we stayed up. I made my son finally go to bed at midnight. But it was funny because he has a room downstairs. And I could just hear him groaning from my room upstairs <laughs> following the results, just going, oh, my God. And finally, I think I went to bed at 2. I remember same thing you did. I woke up the next day. And I just felt despair, utter despair. So much so, I was still working at Wayne State at the time, and I was just teaching there as part-time faculty. And 
I have this very clear and vivid memory because Wayne State, again, we've talked about this awesome campus. I feel like we're, we brag about it a bit, but it's really cool. And we're, we're in this uh, mix where we're kind of close to the Detroit Institute of Arts. So we have a lot of groups of young students. There's the Detroit Science Center. There's a lot of cultural points in the area of that college campus. But I saw this group of about 30, I would say middle school students that were Muslim American. And I saw them and I just like, burst into tears because I just knew after all the rhetoric I'd heard from Trump, things were going to be bad. And I just remember I was at a Starbucks in our bookstore and I tried to order my coffee and I just like kind of completely broke down. And the person behind me started crying as well. And so it was like this really like shared effective moment where like everyone sort of just got it there, but it's an urban R1 school. So a lot of our students are people of color. We have a lot of people who are of Middle Eastern descent for our listeners out there. We're very close to a suburb um, called Dearborn, Michigan. And I do believe Dearborn has the highest um, number of Muslim Americans in the country, if I'm not mistaken. And so it is a, you know, it's a very diverse area. I love that about it, but I'm just like, wow, this really plays into our day to day. Right. And so when I was at Wayne State, everyone kind of shared in this like collective moment of grief. The weird thing for me that was going on in the meantime was I was actually in the middle of the application process for this full time job I have now. Mm -hmm. And what I really noticed, I started there in 2016 in December. And so I started class in January 2017. I feel like the presidency had a chilling effect on how I teach my classes. One of the first memories I have of working there, someone's parent had called up and complained that a professor went on a bit of an anti-Trump tirade and that student was really offended because they had voted for Trump. Told their parents and the parents called and complained. I was like, wow, I really have to check myself now in these classes, right? I can't teach the way I feel comfortable because I think now these folks are really sort of emboldened to speak their minds, you know, but I can't because I have my new job and I don't want to get fired. And that was really strange for me and really difficult. And so I tried to sort of make some kind of comments in between the lines. We study rhetoric a lot in those composition classes, as I know you know, but for our listeners, you know, it's this idea of like what makes an effective rhetor or speaker. And it's a pretty pretty textbook boilerplate assignment across colleges across the U.S. It's the rhetorical analysis essay, right? Mm -hmm. And you study how effectively a speaker's arguments are made and you can appeal to logos, this idea of logic and making logical arguments. And you can appeal, a speaker can appeal to pathos or pathos, I've heard it pronounced both ways, or emotions, as well as um, ethos, showing credibility. And so what I tried to do kind of in between the lines there was break down the different speeches that both Trump and Clinton had provided and think about, you know, I was like, why did Trump win? He didn't appeal to the logos. There's not a damn thing that's logical in any of his speeches. And he didn't really show his credibility, right? He always strikes me as a kid in class who didn't do the homework and doesn't know what they're talking about, but they'll just keep spewing random crap until they get to some sort of answer. But what he did appeal was to emotions and very, very effectively, I might add. So I was like, and what emotions were those class? Fear, right? Oh my gosh, the bad hombres are crossing the border. He appealed to anger. They're taking our jobs, quote unquote, right? Where did our jobs go? So fear, anger, disgust, hatred, I would dare say. So when we were talking about that in 2017, like how he won, stirring people's emotions up can be a really effective way of getting people to do something. And in his case, 
the emotions were ones that were, you know, not necessarily positive, right? Fear, anger, um, betrayal, you know, this country has betrayed us. We're owed something kind of a weird sense of nationalistic pride. That's a little bit skewed. So those are my recollections. Sorry, that's kind of a rant, but it's funny that four years later, I remember this all so clearly. Uh, it really affected me. It did affect my job. As I said, did you notice any shift? I mean, it's kind of probably a little different for you. I'm trying to think of like where you were at at that time. Did you notice any perceptible shift in any of the work that you were doing? Did you feel like that you had to temper your thoughts or anything like that? Or what you said, did that play into your life at the time at all? So I have... Uh, noticed this again leading up to this election this has become really clear to me that I truly have been living in some kind of a bubble for me it's I'm very much surrounded by other uh, by people that have sort of the same level of education as I do um, that have very similar political views I don't really know very many people that are sort of on the other side of things And I think it's really interesting what you're describing about the classroom situation because anti-intellectualism runs so deep in this country. It did before. And I think Trump was really able to tap into that. And the way that you're doing rhetorical analysis and showing the students how to look at the original text, right, not to get it through another media outlet or whatever, but to actually look at what the political candidates are saying and analyzing how the language works and how they're convincing their audiences and whatnot. That's exactly why um, somebody like Trump depends on the anti-intellectualism so much, why that has to be such a core component to his strategy. And I think, you know, what I've, I was thinking about this uh, ahead of time a little bit. And I, I do think that, you know, coming from another cultural background where anti-intellectualism doesn't run quite as deep. And in Germany, there's sort of an, I I would say, and I I haven't read any cultural studies, like German cultural studies on this, but I would say that intellectuals have a very different standing within German culture. So it's interesting to come here and to see how central the skepticism of intellectuals is and has been throughout American history. And so now it's just sort of accumulated into this this situation that we had for the last four years where, you know, we're actually somebody can be anti-truth and that's like actually a thing. Like I don't that that still is like mind boggling to me that this whole like fake news and that it's okay to lie and it's okay to be anti-truth. And I think that academics or the academic environment has is such a plays such a core role in dismantling something like this which is why they're fighting against it so hard which is why you know we can talk about this more later the biden election makes me a little bit hopeful that you know some of that can be reversed within sort of american culture that being said for my work specific to the field that I acquire in because I, you know, I acquire in cultural studies. And so I had noticed a very interesting shift from sort of the media that, that are produced, the the television series that are popular, that people are watching and what the content of those was. Right. So like, if you go a little bit further back, like, you know, the early 2010, like the early tens, there were so many people talking about television these long television series there was the you know they, we were all so excited about like Breaking Bad and Dexter and all of these shows that sort of 
have a very nuanced view on morality and that kind of challenge our sense of like what's ethical and what it means to be good and what it means to be bad. Right. So these like really nuanced perspectives on these, on these questions were dominant up until about 2016. And then there's just this complete swap where all of a sudden we have so much more science fiction and fantasy and nostalgia. Those are like the things that I see in, you know, when I go to conferences, that's what I see people working on nostalgia and science fiction and fantasy. And so to me, it's really interesting to see that like as scholars and as cultural studies scholars, it has been very unbearable to look at the present moment. And so we're looking to the future. We're looking at all of these like scientific horror, like all of these different things. And then also looking back to, you know, if we look at Mad Men, which, you know, granted is from the same time period, but Mad Men and Stranger Things and like all these other shows that are sort of paint that that sort of paint previous um, decades in this positive light makes me wonder, you know, why it is like what how are these issues like the future and the past charged in certain ways that allow us to not look at the present or to envision a different present for us, right? Does that make sense? It's just funny because what you're saying <laughs> totally tracks with me. I was going to talk to you about like, I'm so corny right now, but I literally just got a young adult trilogy called His Dark Materials. And I have been <laughs> so, I literally made this comment to Ernie the other night because it's a, it's a show, I guess His Dark Materials was as popular, if not more popular than Harry Potter in the UK. And so the HBO picked it oh, up wow. um, with BBC. Right. And and so it's really I was sort of like laughing about watching it because there's like talking bears in the show and things like that. And <laughs> Ernie said, well, why why do you think you like so much of this stuff? And I said, because it is such a departure from reality. It just allows me complete escapism. And I really, really I've always liked Star Trek and Star Wars. And so Star Trek, I've written a little bit about in the last couple of years, and I really love there's a new um, updated version of it that came out. Uh, we're in season three called Discovery, and I love it so much. And, you know, the reason I love it, it's it's finally the values and the technology are caught up to like where they should be, where it sort of matches the production. And in this new series, there's trans characters, there's non-binary characters, there's two men who are in love, and it's just shown in this really organic, nuanced way. And it's like, yeah, that's the future I want, you know? And so it just totally tracks because I can't look at this ugliness and this hatred. It just starts to overwhelm, you know? And that was one of the things that I was kind of happy about when we stopped driving to work, when I didn't have to commute anymore. I used to listen to, you know, 45 minutes of NPR on the way there and 45 minutes on the way back. And in some ways, I thought it was kind of healthy for me to disconnect from that. I'm just going to go look at my space aliens and talking <laughs> polar bear armies. <laughs> and, you know, I don't I'm, I don't ignore what's happening, but it's just a nice escape sometimes. And I do agree there is a total switch from that prestige television and that nostalgia, right? Like that's why Mad Men was so weird. It's like showing you these like really hard truths about gender and sexuality and substance abuse. But then at the same time, it's done in a really aesthetically pleasing way. So that's interesting as well. It was such an abrupt shift for me from what you call the prestige television, even like Sopranos and The Wire and, you know, The West Wing and all of those sort of like long 
longish, like well-developed narratives that then some, you know, and, and the, the shows that we're currently talking about still have that, like Game of Thrones has a very like elaborate storyline and multiple storylines, but it's all sort of, you know, there's zombies and there's like, I don't know what other monsters are there. So um, I, I didn't really get into Game of Thrones, I'll admit. I heard from like my colleagues that were really excited about it. And I was like, zombies and dragons, really? <laughs> they, cover, they covered the full gamut there, man. It was good. Yes, um, indeed. <laughs> no, I just, I, I think that's really interesting. And I think we could even probably read binge watching as a part of that panacea too, right? That we just yeah. want to immerse ourselves. It's not enough just to see it for an hour. So it sounds like you have noticed a little bit of how this has maybe not impacted what you say to people, but definitely the content and the tone and like what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. I think this election has been really good for me as far as, you know, I talked about thinking about the rhetoric, but just in the last week, there have been so many teachable moments and this kind of connects to what you were talking about earlier with this idea that like, fake things totally made up, totally fabricated are just accepted. And, you know, I felt like it was my duty, again, trying not to be dismissive or disparaging. But I said, you know, last week, I was like, look, I just can't focus in on what we're supposed to be working on. So let's just look at the election a little bit. Let's talk about that. Let's I tried to frame it as finding good research because that's one of our course objectives, right, is learning how to use scholarly research and how using a credible source like the New York Times is a better idea than just going based on what you see in social media. And so I had a student that was like, yeah, but did you see that post from Flint, Michigan? Did you see the Flint, Michigan post? They have video of someone stuffing ballots for Biden. And I'm like, really? Let's take a look at that. And I'm like, first of all, even if this is true, even if it is from Flint, Michigan, how do you know they're stuffing the ballot for Biden? You know what I mean? Right. But the assumption yeah. is, oh, because Biden won, he must be faking it. And so I said, how do you know it's from Flint, Michigan? Well, because it says. Okay. How, but you can just take any video and say it's Flint, Michigan. It turns out that video has been taken down. It was on Facebook. It was from a Russian election. It wasn't even from a United States election. This just goes to show you how easy it is to put a video up and say this is the truth and it's not. So there's that. And so I kept put, putting these up in my um, class chat, in my Canvas course shell, just to say, let's look at the facts here. Yeah, I think there's going to be, it's going to be interesting for you as somebody who is in the classroom to see how deep this runs. Um, you know, this is obviously not going to be something that's going to be fixed by the election. And I think that's sort of, for me, looking back at the election results, you know, I'm, as you know, probably I'm sort of, I've always been the sort of I've always been more of a glasses have empty kind of person. And it's hard for me to look past the seven over 70 million people that voted for Trump. So yes, you know, I'm excited. I'm very happy about, you know, the election results. I'm happy about how that went. I don't have any doubts about how accurate the results are. You know, I saw this, this tweet or something on social media that was just like, wow, if the Democrats cheated at this election, they really suck at cheating. Like if we were, right. <laughs> if the Democrats like, had tried to like make this a clear win for Biden, then they, you know, then maybe they would have figured out a way to have that all settled by, you know, Tuesday night or Wednesday at the latest and not wait until Saturday morning. At any rate, I think all of this runs very deep and the fake news and the anti-truthism 
and the anti-intellectualism is going to continue to haunt us. And that was an issue that I faced in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 when I was teaching, that there were students that were sort of reluctant to this. I mean, teaching writing is all about teaching critical thinking, right? And so there's just something there. I found that even prior to the Trump presidency, that was a real, the really challenging part about teaching composition. And so I think for, like I said, for somebody like you, um, who's going to have to be in the classroom for the next, you know, however many years, it'll be a challenge to continue to work at that. And I think that that's probably what, if I were teaching, that's what my primary concern would be in a writing class would be to teach, you know, critical thinking, critical analysis, rhetorical analysis, just like you said you were doing. Yeah, it's interesting to see how much longer you'll be dealing with this. You know, it's funny, too. I even got an email from a student this last semester. Wow, Dr. Bell, it was really great working with you. You know, I've heard just these horror stories of liberal professors. I just, I was so scared to take this class because I just figured you were going to be one of those professors that doesn't let me express myself. But that's kind of this idea, right? That on the one hand, yeah, they're kind of like pigeonholing us. And I don't do that. It's about how well did this person construct their argument? We had a project in that class that was about discourse community and learning language. And she asked me if she could write about learning the language of her church. And I thought that was a great idea. I thought it was really interesting. And it was a pretty deep paper. It was about hermeneutics, which I mean, honestly, I do not run into a lot of first year composition <laughs> students that even know what hermeneutics is. Right. And she was talking about incorporating Greek and Latin. And I thought it was great. But I think that's the weird part is that perception that because I'm a liberal, or because I voted for Biden, I'm like anti Christian somehow, when in fact, my kids go to a Catholic school, my whole family family were Catholic Democrats for the last 50 years or so. So to me, that's the weird part, right? There's this real disconnect. And I think there's a real attempt to say, you know, because you voted this way, you must be this, this, and this. And that kind of speaks to what you're talking about as well, where there's a lot of gray area. I mean, I don't think as Americans, we're all like in this neat little box of like, because I'm a Democrat, I don't believe in these things and I b believe in those. Does that make sense? Just to like reaffirm that, I think that's part of the the entire sort of rhetorical strategy of demonizing educators, right? The educators that give you the critical thinking skills are the people that are going to... The fact that they might convince people who are originally leaning towards a Republican to vote Democrat is not because they put their opinions on people, but because they give them the critical thinking skills to arrive at that conclusion themselves. Right. And so that's why it is such a core component of the current Republican discourse to demonize educators as liberals and saying, oh, they don't want you to let your let you have your opinions. Well, the fact of the matter is, if you do some digging and you critically think about what you're being presented, then you're likely to come to those conclusions on your own. And so that's the that's a whole nother part of it where an unfortunate position for you to be in at the same time, it's a it's a position where you have the opportunity to really help people learn those skills. And then and then if they still come to the same conclusion, then, you know, well, then that's just that's fine. But at least they've done the work, you know. 
it's a privileged position that I'm in, right, to be trying to help these students see through that. And that's right. You know, I'm just providing the background, the ideas, the knowledge to kind of do some of that investigation. And then if you do, if the student does that work and they still come to the same conclusion, that's great. I'm curious to see how it plays out because, again, I think if anything, like you said, what the really scary point of this is, is that it's a lot of people that still voted for him. It's a lot. It's it's so many that looked at, you know, what he's done over the last four years and said, you know what, I want four more years of that. I think it's been great. So that's the part to me that really is a disconnect. And I'm still hoping that I can just have students think critically about it. And that us versus them mentality, I think, is going to be a difficult challenge for me to overcome. So we've been talking a lot about how this kind of plays into our work life. I know your kids are quite a bit younger than mine, but does any of this seep into the conversations in your family life? Did your kids kind of look to the election? I know you talked about your daughter kind of making a spreadsheet and thinking about that, which I just thought was so awesome and adorable. And what a cool way to use the technology at this time. But are they old enough to kind of mention the election? Are they intrigued following it? They didn't really have a choice in terms of whether they were going to follow it or not, because I had the TV running the entire week basically, that they were counting. Um, so my daughter got very drawn in to it. My son is four, so, you know, he sort of knew what who we were rooting for, but it was more like, to him, it was more like a soccer match than anything else. But my daughter definitely got drawn into it, and we had had conversations with her throughout the past four years about certain things, right? I remember when she entered kindergarten, you know, the, every school has this sort of like guidelines or code of honor or whatever. And one of the things that was on her school's honor code was integrity. And I got so hung up on that because I was like, first of all, that's very abstract for a five-year-old. And then second of all, you know, how am I supposed to have her in, like instill these values in her if the leaders of our country, you know, if like the majority of people in our country select a leader that doesn't represent those values, how am I going to instill those in her, right? And so we have talked over the last four years about sort of in in terms that are, that she understands, right? That they also, that the teachers will also use to talk to the kids about how to act towards other people, bullying, you know, things like that, lying, all those sort of abstract or all of those kinds of values that we try to instill and we I have had the conversations with her that we currently do not have a president who embodies those values so and she had when on her way home from school there was um, one of the yard signs was one of the I don't know if you've seen these before the uh, no more bullshit yard signs no I haven't seen that one it was like Trump Pence no more bullshit and so she thought that it was an anti-Trump uh, sign, <laughs> which I thought was fun. But then I had to have a conversation and be like, that is not proper political discourse. Like I then have to sit down and be like, this is something that, you know, that's not how we talk to each other. That's not how we exchange opinions. And I cannot believe that there's a yard sign that I have to drive by every day on my way to school and then have to explain to my daughter why that's not 
appropriate language when we're trying to have a conversation about how to create a better world. It was very minimal. I didn't do a whole lot. The kids went to the drop off my ballot with me. So that was kind of a fun activity where I tried to like show them. My daughter also helped me like fill out the ballot. And like I showed her how I do the research, you know, like there were obviously there were certain things that I didn't have to do research on. But then there were other things on the ballot that I had to do research on. And so she helped me with that. And she was really excited about, you know, coloring in the bullet points. I don't know if that's illegal. And I'm like, you're now going to get haunted down. But she helped me with that. And so, um, so I just sort of walked her through it. But there was like, I'm not we're not a super political family. I don't talk to her about it all the time. But she did get excited about it. Um, like I said, she was, you know, as she was watching, she started taking notes on the results. Like she has a PowerPoint with like a couple slides that are like, okay, that were, at, you know, she did that at the time when like the last four or five states were still out. And she was, and so she, and they kept like talking about the path to victory for each of the candidates. And so she had like that all written out, like how many electoral votes each state had and like how Biden could win and how Trump could win. And so, it was it was fun to kind of see her get excited about it she was like mom when I grow up I want to get a degree in democracy and so (laughs) so we talked about you know how she could get a degree in history or political science or whatever so that was that was fun that was interesting so yeah those are those are some of the ways in which the election and the whole process leading up to it has impacted our kids I assume that your kids were a little bit more invested in it Definitely. Well, because my son is 16 and he's always been interested in American politics, he followed it probably the closest. And we did. It was interesting to watch the election results. You know, when we went to bed on Tuesday night, I'm like, we just have to be patient. And I guess in my house, there was a lot of impatience, but I kept trying to frame it like this is First of all, I think the coolest part of it was to see the massive voter turnout. This was one of the biggest election years, I think they said in like a century, but it was cool. We were watching it. I'm like, it's going to take some time. We want people to take the time to count these votes. It's not going to be like this quick cut and dry thing, nor should it be, right? It's a weird year. We had a lot of people that did vote absentee. I had that option. So I said, sure. Yes. And same kind of thing. I had my son, we kind of looked up some of the candidates, especially for like boards of regents and things like that, because I didn't know as much about those. And since Mm -hmm. I do work in academia, I thought it was important to like do my research and figure out who was running for what. So there are those conversations, um, kind of just all of us looking at how many votes were in for each state. I think Georgia was a big clincher that we're just like, yes, that was so awesome. (laughs) Watch Georgia go from red to blue. We were so excited about that. And then my 13-year-old daughter is kind of interested in LGBTQ rights and they're also involved on like TikTok and things like that. And she's like, yeah, you know, a lot of people are really talking, mom, you know, we're really worried, like what's going to happen to the right of gay marriage and things like that if Trump is in the White House for another four years. So she was kind of invested in that way. So it was cool to see them just actually taking more notice than just, you know, the bullshit sign. And I just think that's so ridiculous, right? First of all, I think that's hilarious. Um, It's a bit of a misnomer because it's like, yeah, right, let's get rid of them because that's what it's been. But, you know, way to elevate the conversation. And I think that's just kind of the tone. And to sort of backtrack a little bit, I mean, we've been talking about these things since the video came out of the grab. I just grab her by the, you know, like having that conversation about consent and about feminism and about just, you know, God, I mean, that's the tone for the last four years. Is that sort of like, that's the person that's 
representing my country that I love. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's been ridiculous. And I feel like it goes from that to when um, Trump made fun of a reporter that should have been the stopping point, but it's just like, I guess to me, it's opened up a lot of lines of discourse for how we talk, how we think and, and how I just, God, it's been so much. That's why this is going to be the, <laughs> this could be like the longest conversation ever. Yeah. Um, I like, I just was going off a different, in a different direction to say that I would love to have a longer conversation about how, um, how teaching, how this, the election season and maybe, you know, I, all of the all of the anti-truth and fake news shenanigans has impacted your teaching but that might be you know a that's a topic for another day. So for sure. So we wanted to look a little bit to kind of close off thinking about what's coming out of the media and kind of what people are projecting about the Biden presidency. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what has really stood out to you as you have been following this um, about how this might impact higher education or how this might impact our work and roles as parents. Um, you said there was a video that really stood out to you. Is that something you wanted to talk a little bit about today? Yeah. The one thing that resonated with me the most after the election were a couple of videos of parents that uh, circulated this, the, the one video that I'm sure you've seen, I think multiple people messaged that to me and then I saw it come up in different feeds was the Van Jones video um, where he sort of is talking about that it's, you know, a good day for some people. Um, and he's kind of, you know, he's on the verge of tears or it starts out with him actually crying and just saying that it's how difficult it's been to be a parent. And so these two people, you know, that that I'm referring to, it's important to point out that they're both um, black Americans. So I think for African-Americans and for people of color, it's been so much harder to parent over the last four years, where for me, it's mostly from like a value point of view, which is a luxury position to have for sure. So I want to acknowledge that privilege. But at the same time, I do think that what these two people, what these two parents are saying was really just how I felt about this election. I think I was voting as a parent and I was very much thinking about what the future of this country is and how we are going to raise compassionate, kind, um, caring human beings that can make the world a better place and how important the leadership is. And, you know, for me, it's just so uh, important to be able to point to our president and our vice president and say, this is how you treat other people with dignity and respect and care. And so that was the thing I think that stood out to me the most in, in this election and with these election results. Do you have any, uh, any responses like that? Was there anything that stuck out most to you? Yeah, I saw that video as well, and it was very emotional. And I think, again, just to note that I am a white Caucasian woman. So my experiences, again, are on the sort of like more ideological plane. And just to acknowledge that, you know, the women I work with, women of color who have children, and just how terrifying it has been for some people to be out in the world in this Trump America, right? In this place where we've basically said it's acceptable. I mean, it goes back to Charlottesville, right? God almighty, you know, and that these things have been made acceptable by a person who said there was good people on both sides. I mean, 
I just think about my friends and colleagues and coworkers of color who have children and just maybe they can, you know, well, we still have a few months left, but maybe just start to feel a little bit more secure and like sending their child out into the world. But and just, yeah, as parents, you know, I want to set this compassionate, knowledgeable sort of like. I don't know, viewpoint for my children. Like those are the things that are important to me. And I don't think, I mean, not to make it political or religious, I don't think those are in opposition to what they learn at their Catholic school by any means. I think the values that are, that I'm thinking about are helping people who are less fortunate, right? When you have a little bit more sharing that, that's in the Bible, too much is given, much is required. And so I don't see those values that I see um, in maybe the Democratic Party in opposition by any means to what they're taught in that mode. And that's really tricky for me as well, because I have a lot of relatives and a lot of the people that are the parents at the school that my kids go to that are single issue voters who voted for Donald Trump because he suggests that he is upholding Christian values. I think he's really crafty in a weird way. As as ignorant as he comes across, I think there's something about him that's so duplicitous and so kind of smart in a way that he got those folks that probably are well-intentioned to buy into that somehow. I was talking to my husband about that the other day. I think they've, I think just Trump, but the Republican party in general have figured out a way to really compartmentalize um, Christian values and then to really pick out, you know, to really be able to run on a platform where those core Christian values that you're pointing out that are also sort of like what I took away from my Christian upbringing are actually not represented in their platform, but they are able to elevate this one single issue into such a central position where they're saying we're defending your Christian values because we're defending this one single thing um, that a lot of these voters, I don't know, don't have have lost sight of these other Christian values or I don't know exactly how that works in their minds. Um, and I think maybe I, you know, maybe that's that's something to look into and to learn more about if you want to have those conversations with your relatives or whatever. But that's that's something that is just completely mind boggling to me. And I and I say that all the time. I vote. I think that I vote in line with my Christian values when I vote Democrat. I do, too. I always think back to when I was at Mary Grove College in Detroit and I saw this bumper sticker and I always post this as like, Jesus was the original liberal. When we come back to you're asking a little bit about um, what resonates with me as a parent, you know, my son has come home from high school very upset in the last few days because he said so many of his classmates support Trump and he just really feels sort of perplexed by that. He feels upset. He doesn't know where to channel that, you know, and I just, well, we just have to keep moving forward and Biden won. So let's hope that maybe the tone changes. Do you want to, do you want to sort of close off by thinking about how could the Biden presidency then kind of impact our work in higher education? My one hope is just kind of thinking about the current student loan debt crisis. And this is something that I pay attention to because it does impact me personally, but just all the other people out there that are struggling with that loan debt. Going into my graduate career, my master's degree, I realized I was borrowing money. I know that. I knew that. I just guess I didn't realize how much the interest rate was really going to accrue and add up. And so when I was kind of filling out my paperwork and things like that, I'm on an income-based plan. 
I made a comment about paying it off and they're like, well, just so you know, this isn't a plan to ever really pay this off. You're never, ever going to really pay this off. And I'm just like, okay. I mean, what does that even mean? And so just reports from people that just, I feel like, you know, it's the interest rate that just really gets you right. Like I knew that I was, um, I knew what I was getting myself into. And then just the relative, like, difficulty. There are plans in place. A lot of people that become educators after this, there's different plans for forgiveness, right? This idea that like, you're going to borrow this money, but then the government is going to help you pay it back because you're in one of these professions like teaching, teaching in an empowerment zone. But the people that I know that have tried to go out for some of that forgiveness, it is so difficult. Even my sister, I'd have to ask her, but I think she sent the application back nine different times to get like $5,000 of her debt forgiven. And I've heard similar anecdotes stories as well. So I'm hoping that we kind of will continue to rethink that. I know a lot of people are happy that the um, end of the presidency means also the end of Betsy DeVos as someone with zero, like zero kind of like understanding of working in the field of education, running that department. That was something that I really appreciated about Biden's speech that he gave on that Saturday which was that he explicitly said you will have a secretary of education who has actually worked in the field. And he pointed out that his wife is an educator and he pointed out the way that that's not something that she does, but that's who she is. And I feel like that's so core to how so many of our teachers and educators approach their profession. It's that's, you know, they care so deeply about the work that they do. And just to know that you have somebody in a leadership position who actually understands that and appreciates that and will, you know, support all those of you that are doing this extremely important work from an early, you know, early childhood to the college where we're talking about critical thinking. I think that was just so encouraging. And I, that was one of the moments of his acceptance or his speech. I don't know if it's called an acceptance speech. I don't know if you would refer to it as an acceptance acceptance speech, but right. <laughs> that was that was one of the moments that really stuck out to me from that that speech was that looking forward, there's something to be hopeful in terms of how the education is going to be approached. I personally, coming from Germany, um, have always been appalled by the way that student um, student loans are handled here. the The fact that the interest rates are so high, especially compared to like mortgage rates and things like that, is just the fact that there are so many people that have student loans that are so high that they're never that there's no hope of ever paying them off when people are taking on on those debts. And then later they pay back to society. I mean, it's just like, it's just so difficult for me to wrap my head around just based on what I know from Germany, where you basically, you know, I went to college for free. I didn't have to pay anything. And if I had, you know, if I had come from a, from a lower income background, then I would have been able to apply for money from the state to help with living costs. And that money you can, you pay back, I think 50% of that and no more than 10,000 euros. So there's just sort of like a cap. There's, you know, and it's just to support people that, you know, are all learning careers that will allow them to pay back to society, right? Like even somebody who doesn't get an education or somebody who doesn't have kids still needs doctors to go to and still needs, you know, pharmacists and needs all of these other educated people to help them, you know, live a good life in a, you know, in a well-developed society. And so, there, it's just dumbfounding to me that there's not more appreciation of that in American culture and American society. So I do hope that Biden's 
when sort of signals in that direction and signals that they, you know, it probably won't be the kind of plan that um, other Democratic um, candidates had put forward. But I still hope that there will be some sort of relief for all of those people that are in debt because they got an education so that they could contribute to our society. Moving forward, I don't know if we have any closing thoughts, final ideas, just we're hoping by the time we, (laughs) maybe by the time this comes out, we'll actually have a concession speech. I guess I really want to be optimistic, right? I was going to say, do you really like... I'm not optimistic. I doubt it. I know. It's crazy. It's and so I have to I must ask our listeners around the world, like, what do you make of this? It is just so bizarre. But, you know, again, my friends that live in Scotland and England, they I mean, they have just as strange situations going on, too, with like the far right and things of that nature. So I think this is kind of a global sort of pendulum swinging back and forth. I hope the United States is moving in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be the question of how much is going to be feasible, depending on what happens with the Senate in January. Uh, that's that's obviously one factor. The important goal was to get a Democrat back in power. There's always going to be some people that aren't happy with what the results is, but I or what the results are and what politics can actually accomplish, depending on you know who the people are that they're working with. And I can't, you know, I don't know enough about. Joe Biden to know to have a clear sense of like how much he can accomplish in in terms of working across the aisle but there you know prior to this there were just people that had to fear for their lives and i think we can all agree that it's a good situation and a good development that that might that that fear might be lessened i think it's going to be hard work to get rid of it altogether but at least, you know, we can we can change our political discourse. And I'm sure that Biden and, and Harris will make some changes that bring some justice and maybe and lessen that fear to at least some degree. Listeners, if we have any uh, political scientists out there, historians, maybe you can illuminate us on other issues. We'd love to hear from you. Continue this conversation like our coverage and consideration of the pandemic, I think our considerations of the election will last into the next few months and years, possibly, of this podcast. So, Judith, if they wanted to get a hold of us, where do they find us on Instagram as well as our email at Gmail? Email at Gmail. Anyone who wants to get in touch with us and let us know their perspectives and fill us in on whatever we missed, they can send us an email at phdandparentingpodcast at gmail.com. And we're also on Instagram as PhD in Parenting. All right, listeners, until next time, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to hear from you soon. 